Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner. Today we want to do a what I think is a very interesting talk. It's on bottle anesthetics. I feel like anybody that is looking at anesthesia or going through school, this is like, at least in my mind, the one big talk that people really look forward to. It's the the one thing that really separates anesthesia from any other field is the idea of being able to give volatile anesthetics. You really don't see this anywhere but anesthesia. So Tanner and I wanted to, to spend this episode going through how they work in terms of how we get the anesthetic into the lungs, transferred across into the blood, into the brain, how they cause their effects, when we would use some bottle anesthetics over another, depending on what kind of patient population you're dealing with. So that's kind of the plan for today. First thing I want to do today is ask just a favor from all of you who are listening. We've had quite a growth in the number of listeners in the last month or so. And really what would help Cole and I is if you guys can go on the Apple podcast or wherever you listen and just leave a review. That'd be super helpful. And then also, if you give us a five-star rating, that'd make our podcast more visible for other people to see. So even if just half of you went and did that, that would be amazing. And so if you have just a few extra minutes, please go leave us a review and then also give us a rating. That'd be really helpful. So without further ado, we're going to get into the actual discussion here today. The first thing we want to talk about is how these gases work. This isn't exactly super clear about the actual mechanism of action, but as far as the actual pathway of getting the volatile gases into the body, we're pretty clear on that aspect, which just really gets kind of fuzzy when we're talking about the actual mechanism of action in the brain and as far as which receptors and things like that that these gases work on. But initially, let's think about this. We were giving these inhaled anesthetics. It's going to be breathed in by the patient. The concentration of the gas in the lungs is going to continue to rise. And our goal is to basically get to a level where the pressure or the amount of anesthetic that's in the lungs is going to be uh, the same as what's in the brain. And that's what's going to allow the anesthetic to have its effect for our patient. When you finally have the concentration in the lungs, it'll go into the vessel-rich groups, and then that will diffuse into the brain. That's where we get our sedative effects. As far as how it actually causes sedation in the brain, we're not really sure about the specifics here. The Meyer-Overton rule says that the potency is positively correlated with the lipid solubility of the drug. So basically, the more lipid soluble the drug, the greater the potency. As far as the specific mechanisms that are causing the sedation in the brain, it's going to antagonize the NMDA receptor. It's going to agonize your GABA receptors. It's going to block your voltage-gated sodium channel, so basically like a local anesthetic. And then remember your glycine receptors, those are inhibitory, so this is going to agonize those glycine receptors. The other things it'll do, it'll also depress the motor neurons in the ventral horn, and so it'll have some effects here in the spinal cord. It does not affect the GABA receptors in the spinal cord. It just affects the GABA receptors in the brain. In the hippocampus, it causes amnesia. And then in the reticular activating system, you'll get your unconsciousness and then you'll also have some uh, analgesia effects in the spinal cord. So when I say we don't know exactly how it works, there's a lot of reasons that it 
could work or a lot of things that we think it does. There's a lot of things that we understand and know about what's going on in the brain. But as far as which one is more significant than the other, it's kind of a grouping of all of these different receptors. Yeah. And so as we really go into this talk and this discussion, the easiest way I can make it said to help you understand is that we are going to be mostly concerned about the concentration of the drug in the alveoli. So kind of skip over the idea for right now of it going into the blood and then distributing, et cetera. Just think the higher the concentration in the lung is basically going to be equal to the concentration in the brain. So how we measure that is by the expired concentration. So if you think about it with me for a second here, you're starting to breathe with a ventilator for this patient and you dial up your, your bottle anesthetic. Now your air being inspired is going to contain this bottle anesthetic and it's going to come in that first breath into the lung. And now that concentration in the lung is going to start to increase. But what's compensating that is some of that bottle anesthetic is going to be taken into the bloodstream and then distributed to the rest of the body. And that will lower the concentration in your lungs. And so your next breath, breathe some more volatile anesthetic in, and that's going to continue to increase that concentration or that partial pressure of the gas in the lungs. But it continually is going to be being uptake into the blood and being distributed to the rest of the body. And the main thing that we're considering here is when it gets taken to the brain, which being in the vessel rich group, it'll be there first, and then it'll hopefully go into the brain and cause the effects that we want. As the concentration gets higher and higher and higher throughout the body and throughout the brain, you're then going to reach a point where you've taken enough breaths where now you don't have as much pull going from the lungs into the blood, and you're going to have expired anesthetic coming back out to a point where that expired anesthetic is then going to be equal to the anesthetic that is in the brain. That's the easiest way for us to monitor the concentration or the partial pressure of the volatile anesthetic in the brain is by our expired concentration. Yeah. And basically this is, I mean, we know this, this happens in the kidneys. This happens all throughout your body where you have increased solutes. Think of it basically as like a solute and you're going to dilute that or it's going to go to where there's less solutes. So as inhaled anesthetics come into the lungs, they're going to cross from your alveoli to the blood until your blood is starting to match the same concentration that's in the alveoli and you're not going to be getting the gas to be going across into the blood. At that point, you're going to start exhaling the same ratio of the gas that you're putting in through the anesthesia machine. And that's when you know that the level at the brain is what you're looking for because you're getting that same, the same concentration coming back out is what's in the blood. And if it's in the blood, that's what's going to the brain. So awesome. That describes how we get the anesthetic to the brain. And so going forward, the most simple way to look at it is just think the faster we get that expired concentration or that, that concentration in the alveoli to increase, the faster that we get that concentration in the brain to increase and we can cause these sedative effects. So due to different volatile anesthetic drugs that we use, they're all going to have varying levels of potency and solubility that causes it to be brought into the blood from the lungs and then into the brain. We try to find a common ground here that we can use to have a standard of measuring for all these drugs. And that's where MAC comes into play. So if you ever heard of MAC, there's a couple of different MACs in anesthesia, but the MAC that we're talking about this time is a minimum alveolar concentration. So what that stands for is basically how much partial pressure or concentration of drug in the alveolar sac is needed to cause the sedation that we want. And so MAC is expressed as the percentage of one atmospheric pressure at which 50% of the population will not respond to a painful stimulus. So depending on the potency of the drug that we're using, basically a MAC is saying this much percent of one atmospheric pressure is needed of this drug to cause 50% of the population not to respond to a painful stimuli. 
So let's think about this. If I have a drug that I'm giving that is very potent, I'm not going to need as much of it to knock that patient out. And so my MAC is going to be less than if I'm using a drug that is not as potent, which means I need more of it to cause that sedation. So when, when we talk about the MACs of different drugs here later in the talk, just know that the higher the MAC, the less potent that drug is. And so when we go through the drugs, we'll talk about the MAC that we, we aim for with each drug. But the other thing I want to touch on right now is there's different forms of MAC that we discuss. So the MAC that I just discussed is your total MAC or your whole MAC that you're looking for. But there's also MAC awake and MAC bar. So what MAC awake is, is basically one third of that whole MAC that you're going to be using. So let's just say for hypothetical purposes here, if I'm given a volatile anesthetic and I want to give one MAC is that standard dose that will knock out 50% of the population from responding to a painful stimulus. Well, my MAC awake then is about a third of that. So in this case, 0.33 MAC. And what it stands for is it's the MAC when 50% of people respond to a command. Let's say I tell the patient, open your eyes. 50% of the people will open their eyes at the MAC awake, which is one third of your whole MAC. So in my example of a whole MAC being one, this would be a 0.33 MAC would cause the patient to wake up. If I was using an anesthetic that was a two MAC total, then that'd be 0.66 would be the awake MAC. And then lastly, MAC bar is the MAC necessary to block the adrenergic response to a skin incision. Well, I don't know about you, but if someone's going to be cutting open my skin, that's going to be pretty painful and stimulating. And so basically, you want that MAC to be higher than the MAC whole, which is just the MAC that prevents 50% of the people from responding to a normal painful stimuli. So again, in my original example, if the MAC was 1, now I want a MAC of 1.5 to be equal to my MAC bar, which will prevent the patient from having an adrenergic response to that skin incision. And specifically, the MAC bar is going to blunt the adrenergic response to pain. And so while they may stay asleep at the MAC hole, the MAC bar is going to keep the adrenergic response from exhibiting. So you won't see the increased heart rate or blood pressure, things like that with your MAC bar. So let's think about things that will affect the MAC for your individual patient. It can't be simple enough as just knowing one MAC for every single patient. So what are things that can increase your MAC? Well, if they have increased CNS neurotransmitters, so that'd be from somebody who has amphetamine intoxication or MAOIs, ephedrine or presser use, that would increase your MAC. If you have hypernatremia, hyperthyroidism, red hair is kind of a unique one here. They will need an increased MAC or if they're less than six months old. Again, these are all things that would cause you to need an increased MAC to achieve that sedation. You can also have on the other side a lower MAC, so you would need less of your volatile anesthetic to achieve sedation. This would be someone who is elderly or is hypotensive. If they're in acute alcohol intoxication, so remember chronic alcohol consumption causes you to need an increased MAC, think of it more of like a tolerance, but if they are acutely intoxicated, well, that's already kind of helping your anesthetic. So you need less of a MAC. You need less of your inhaled agent to achieve your sedation. Nitrous oxide, we'll talk about this later in this discussion, but nitrous oxide will decrease the amount of inhalational agent that you need. Hypothermia, hyponatremia, remember hypernatremia was increased MAC. Hyponatremia is a lowered MAC. Lidocaine, opioids, those will be kind of adjuncts to your inhalational agent. You'll need less of it if you're giving opioids. And then also IV anesthetics would be another main one to think about here. 
Great. So the next thing we want to talk about now that we understand Mac and how that works. So now let's talk about how we are going to measure that expired concentration that I talked about before. What we're doing is trying to increase the amount of gas in the alveoli that is staying there with each continual breath and not leaving to go into the rest of the body. And as Tanner mentioned, that basically tells us we've reached that equilibrium point. And so the faster we increase this pressure in the alveoli, which I'm going to call FA, basically the faster then that we are going to cause the response in the brain. So what we can do is we can measure your FA divided by the concentration leaving the vaporizer, which is FI. Basically, then that'll tell us the equilibrium that Tanner talked about, meaning that whatever we put in with the FI, whatever concentration is going into the lung from the vaporizer is the same leaving the lung FA. The higher that FA is compared to the FI, the higher this ratio will rise and the quicker we're going to have that onset in the brain. So what are some things that can affect this ratio, this FA over FI? So the lower the solubility of a gas from the lung into the blood, the faster that FA over FI will rise. So why does this make sense? So as I said before, we're pushing this follow anesthetic from the vaporizer into the lung. And then what's combating that rise in the alveolar pressure is the ability of that gas to then cross over into the blood and go to the rest of the body. Well, if we're giving a drug that is not as soluble from the lung to go into the blood, then that concentration will st- will rise faster in the lung because less is leaving the lung. So now I know that doesn't make quite make sense here. So this is where you got to bear with me because in my mind, I would think if less drug is leaving the lung into the blood, it's not going to get to the brain. But remember, the easiest way to think about this is the faster we rise that concentration in the lung, the faster we rise that concentration in the brain. And so the way I kind of, my mind kind of combats this is basically says if, if it's less soluble in the blood, that means it's going to be easier to quick get out of the blood when it gets to the brain and increase that concentration in the brain. That's Cole's mind understanding this, but basically less soluble means less concentration of that bottle anesthetic will leave the lung into the blood and the faster we'll have a rise in FA, which means we'll have a faster rise in the brain. So now let's talk about what other issues can increase that FA over FI and then cause a faster onset. So basically, the obviously, the faster we deliver the vital anesthetic into the lungs, the faster it's going to increase that FA over FI. So if you have a smaller lung volume and we're giving the same tidal volume, but for a smaller lung volume, it's going to increase that concentration faster. If we are giving a faster respiratory rate, so if we're decreasing that time constant, between breaths, it's going to then increase the amount of concentration being delivered. The more gas flow, so a higher fresh gas flow will increase it. And then obviously the concentration study on the vaporizer. So as I dial up my vaporizer to dial up more drug, then more is going to get into the lung. And then lastly, a smaller anatomic dead space will also cause an increase in the FA over FI. And that's simply because, again, there's less volume there. So there's less of that bottle anesthetic sitting in the dead space and more going into the actual alveoli. There is a small component of this as well. People will say that the volatile anesthetic can also be absorbed into the plastic components of the anesthesia machine, so the actual tubing itself. And while this will have some uptake and limit the amount of volatile anesthetic that actually gets to the lung, it's kind of negligible. We're not really going to say if your patient's not going to sleep very fast that it's because a lot of it's getting absorbed into the tubing, Um, but just know that is a possibility. And that would be important if you had a patient at risk for MH because that volatile anesthetic can still be in the tubing or in the circuit. And so that's really where that would come into effect for your patients with uh, susceptibility to MH. 
And then lastly here, so before we go into the actual different types of drugs, what then would limit the uptake into the blood? So again, if we increase the delivery of all the anesthetic into that lung, it's going to increase that FA over FI ratio quicker. But if we decrease the amount of uptake into the blood, that'll also increase the FA over FI ratio. So what will limit the uptake into the blood? Obviously, like we said before, the lower the solubility of the drug, less will go into the, the blood itself. So the next thing is a low cardiac output. So basically, that will also increase that FA over FI ratio. And then also, the lower the pressure of the drug in the arterial system versus the venous system will also limit the amount of drug that's being uptake by the blood from the lung. And so the faster our rise in FA over FI will occur. So if you're still with us, I know this is very technical and confusing. There's a few terms that we want to discuss just briefly that will be discussed and you need to understand basically what we're talking about. We've, we've talked about most of all of these already in general terms, but specific terms that you might hear um, and you need to be aware of as you move into clinical practice. So the first thing let's talk about is the partition coefficient. You can basically think of this as where does the drug want to go? Where does the drug want to move after it is brought into the lungs? So if a drug has a high partition coefficient, so if it is like 1.4, then that means that basically the ratio is 1 to the alveolus compared to 1.4 in the blood. So higher concentration in the blood than in the lungs. And like Cole was just talking about with the cardiac output and these different pressures and the FA over FI, we want the drug to be high in the lungs. That's where we want our concentration. So if you have a drug that has a low partition coefficient, so 0.42, then you would have 0.42 in the blood compared to one in the alveolus. So whatever, whatever the number is for the partition coefficient, that's what the ratio is in the blood, and it's always to one in the lungs. So a lower partition coefficient means that we have a higher ratio in the lungs. So again, if it's 1.4, that would be more in the blood than 0.42, which would be more in the lungs. Okay. That's the idea behind where the anesthetic wants to go or where it will choose to stay, whether that's in the lungs or in the blood. The other thing we want to think about is where it's going to basically reside. So if it's more soluble, we already talked about this, it's going to want to move into other tissues after it moves out of the vessel-rich groups. And so if, if it has high solubility, so this is your oil-gas partition coefficient, if it has high solubility, it's going to have high potency because it's going to be a slower onset. It's going to be more soluble and it's going to go into these tissues. It's also going to be a slower off because it's going to redistribute from these tissues back into the blood and you'll still have effects in the brain. So if it's more soluble, it's going to be more potent. It's going to be slower on. So your onset is going to be slower, but it's going to last longer and it's going to take less of the drug to have your sedative effects. And then the last one would be the tissue blood partition coefficient. Main one we think here is fat compared to blood. So if you have somebody who has increased fat content, then this is going to redistribute into the fat. And then once the concentration in the blood decreases, this will redistribute into the blood and you'll have prolonged effects. So this will come into play when you're trying to wake up your patient. And if they have increased adipose tissue and you have you know, your inhaled anesthetic on board, it's going to hang around longer for these patients than it would for somebody with less fat tissue. Next, what we want to talk about is the chemical makeup of these drugs. 
And if you are interested in chemistry, please reach out to us on Instagram. You and Cole can talk all day long about this. For me, uh, I can't stand the chemistry side of things, but it's important that we know about this. It's important that we uh, understand the differences between these different medications. All right, so I'm not that big of a chemistry nerd, but it is interesting at least. I had a chemistry minor, so I can at least kind of understand this stuff, but I do not- Don't let them lie to you. You love chemistry. Okay, fine. Not, <laughs> not like love as in like a nerd love for chemistry, but I can tolerate it. Tolerate's probably a better word. All right, fair enough. So, okay, let's just make this really simple. So basically, we're going to have three main bottle anesthetics that we're going to give through a vaporizer. That's going to be isoflurane, desflurane, and sevoflurane. There's another bottle anesthetic we talk about, and that's nitrous, but we give that through our anesthesia machine as a gas because it already comes in gaseous form. And so we can just run it through just like you would turn on oxygen or air from your ventilator. The other three, the ISO, the DES, and the SIVO, basically they come in liquid form and we got to put it in a vaporizer to then turn into gas and deliver it with our breath through the ventilator into the patient. So let's go through right now how to differentiate between the chemical makeup of these medications. So if you ever get a test question about the chemical makeup, just know that isofluorine has only five fluorine ions. Desfluorine has six. Sevofluorine has seven. Isofluorine, instead of having a extra fluorine with it, it has a chlorine, so a chloride ion. So it has those five fluorines with a chlorine as well. And that chlorine basically makes it heavier and more dense. And that's what they say makes it more potent. So I'm kind of giving it away here, step early, but isofluorine is going to be our most potent. Going into uh, another one, we have halothane, which we don't really deal with at all. But if you if you were to see a chemical structure and it asked about halothane, the obvious giveaway is that it has a bromine ion in it. So if you see bromine, which is a BR on the chemical structure, boom, halothane, move on. But again, just the number of fluorine ions, you can just count and differentiate between iso, des, and sebo. So the other interesting thing here is that iso and des have chiral carbons. So what chiral carbon basically means is that you have a carbon that has four attachments and all four attachments to that carbon are different. And we can have two different ways that we arrange those four connections. And we call those two different arrangements stereoisomers. And that's what they think causes a lot of the effects that we see in the brain are basically the receptors that we talked about, Tanner talked about earlier, are stereoselective, meaning that you can have one form of these drugs versus the other and they would bind. So in terms of potency, as I I mentioned earlier, potency goes, ISO is the greatest, which is two times more potent than SIBO. And then ISO is five times more potent as DES. So it goes ISO, SIBO, DES, and then nitrous is the least potent. And if you remember to our MAC values that we talked about, basically the less potent something is, the more MAC is needed. So it would make sense then, which one of these would have the lowest MAC? ISO. And it'd be ISO because ISO is the most potent. So the MAC values, remember, these are the, that total or whole MAC that we talked about earlier. For ISO is around 1.17. SIVO is about 2. DES is about 6. And then nitrous is all the way up at 104. These are kind of hard for me to keep straight. And you have a million and one other things to memorize. If your brain works at all like mine, remember ISO, I is around 1. One and I look the same. SIVO 
Curvy S looks really similar to two, Sevo and two, and then Des is six. We don't really care about the Mac of Nitrous because <laughs> you don't ever use it, but um, that's how I remember ISO versus Sevo. Next, let's talk about the partition coefficients. So I, again, I already kind of touched on this earlier, but we'll talk about the specific numbers here. Remember, partition coefficient is describing how soluble the gas is. The blood gas coefficient you have DES, which is 0.42, nitrous is 0.46, SIVO is 0.65, and ISO is 1.46. So remember, those are all just ratios compared to one in the lung. So DES is 0.42 in the blood compared to one in your lung. So DES is going to have the fastest onset because its blood gas coefficient is low, 0.42. Whereas ISO is going to be a longer onset, 1.46. That means more of it is going to be in the blood, less of it's going to be in the lungs. And remember, lungs are where we're really measuring our effect. Vapor pressure is the amount of molecules in the gaseous form in a closed container. So if you have a higher temperature, you're going to have more of the molecules turning into gas and forming the higher vapor pressure. So the lower the boiling point of a drug, the more likely it'll be in vapor form and you'll have increased vapor pressure. Desfluorine is kind of unique here because it has a boiling point right around room temperature. It needs a special vaporizer called a Tech 6 Des vaporizer. And this allows for the right amount of the desfluorine to be in a vapor form, which we can then utilize for our anesthetic. We care about vapor pressure mainly because the molecules need to be in a gaseous form for us to administer them through the ventilator. And so when we're dialing the different dosages on our anesthetic machine, basically we're dialing the anesthetic to a volume percent. So the volume percent times the total gas pressure equals the partial pressure of the gas. So this is important. If you look at the equation, basically, if we're using 5% partial pressure, the total gas pressure is just your atmospheric pressure. So if we have 5% DES, they're going to do 5% times 760, your atmospheric pressure, and you're going to be delivering 38 millimeters of mercury partial pressure of DES to the patient. This is sort of relevant when you talk about high altitude areas because your total pressure is going to be lower in high altitudes. You're not going to be at 760 millimeters of mercury. You'll be lower. Again, with our newer anesthetic machines, it's not really a major consideration, but this might be a test question. And you just need to know that your total pressure is going to decrease, which could cause less partial pressure of the actual anesthetic getting to your patient. And so you'd have less effect because of your decreased total pressure. With the vaporizers that we use that are the standard vaporizers, they automatically account for this difference in altitude. And so when you dial 5%, it's gonna deliver the same amount of gas, whether you're at high altitude or low altitude. But the DES going through that T6 vaporizer, that does not automatically change. So that's why you have to think about if you're working in Denver and you dial your 5%, it's, it's going to give only 31 millimeters of mercury instead of that original 38. So you're going to underdose the patient. So you need to dial up even more to cause the same effect as you would at lower pressure. But that's like Tanner said, that doesn't really apply to the other anesthetic drugs or if you're not using that Tech 6 vaporizer. All right. And the other thing to keep in mind, if you are working in Denver, um, just make sure you contact us and give us jobs. Thanks. <laughs>
So <laughs> before we move on, let's uh, just quick review here. So the vapor pressures of the three main drugs we're going to talk about, because DES boils right around room temperature, it has a very high vapor pressure. So remember, vapor pressure is when things boil, it's what molecules turn from that liquid form up to the gas form, and that's 700 for the DES, which is right around the atmospheric pressure, which is why we have to do that special vaporizer for it. ISO is 238 and SIVA was 157. So that's why we can use those with a, a regular vaporizer. And again, just as our vaporizer works, the more drug that gets into that vapor form, that fresh gas flow flowing over it can take it into the patient and then more is replaced. So moving on to metabolism of this. So we get rid of these drugs two ways. The main way is by breathing it back out. That's the primary way we get rid of it. You turn off your gas, the concentration flows the other direction and we breathe it back out. The other way is liver metabolism. This is slightly involved. I've seen different sources that say different numbers on this. In terms of the breakdown and the liver metabolism, the way I remember this is an alphabetical order. So DIS is alphabetical for DES, then ISO, and then SIBO. And that's from least to greatest. And so the percentage of each drug broken down by the liver is going to be 0.1 for DES, ISO is one, and then around five to eight percent is SIBO. Other sources I've seen say, remember the rule of twos, and they say DES is 0 0.02, ISO is 0.2, SIBO is two. So there's some variant literature on this, but basically the big thing I want to get at here is not a lot of this is broken down by the liver. The majority of this is just exhaled when you turn off your gas. And again, we're not going to talk much about halothane today, but just know halothane has 40% hepatic metabolism. So this one is the most at risk of having an overdose or having some hepatic injury occur. The one other thing is nitrous oxide has like 0.004%. So really it's just think it's not metabolized at all. We just breathe it out. The main concern with metabolism though, is when the liver metabolizes it, it forms fluoride ions, these free fluoride ions and then trifluoroacetic acid, which is abbreviated as TFA. And that's where you can kind of get your immune reaction and cause a hepatic dysfunction occur. That's why halothane is the most at risk for causing hepatic dysfunction, just simply because it is 40% broken down by the liver and causes a lot of that TFA to be made. But for these other drugs, it's not really a consideration. But the big thing we're considered about is the fluoride ions. It's been shown that that can cause some high urine output renal failure. And so we've talked about this briefly on our renal discussion in our previous episode, but we don't consider it too much of a concern unless there's a very high amount of these fluoride ions going into the kidney. So SIVO basically, because it's broken down the most out of the three that we give, it's going to produce the most of those fluoride ions. It doesn't really make that TFA, but those fluoride ions are what can cause that high output renal damage. But again, it's not really severe enough that we consider it a concern. The biggest concern with the renal system is just a decrease in blood flow to the kidney, but we'll get to that in a little bit. The last thing here with metabolism is if you have a bad CO2 absorber, so if you're using soda lime, if you remember from our anesthesia machine talk, we talked about how SIVO can make compound A in the presence of a bad soda lime. And so that compound A can also cause some damage as well. And then DES and ISO make carbon monoxide as it's broke down product when you have a bad soda lime. So just keep that in mind that when you have a question about SIBO having compound A or doesn't ISO making carbon monoxide, those are outside the body. That's from our, our CO2 absorbent. And then those can be breathed into the patient. Whereas the actual metabolism from the liver is going to produce this TFA and the free fluoride ions. So just make sure you differentiate between those two processes. 
So we're obviously not through with discussing everything that we want to talk about with the volatile anesthetics, but for sake of time, we're going to wrap this episode up here today. And next episode, we're going to talk about nitrous. We'll park there for a little bit and discuss basically the effects on the body and how that will augment our inhalational agents. And then we'll also go through each body system and talk about the effects of the inhalational agents on the different body systems.